Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. She was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. Hello, welcome to the persistence. This is She Who Persisted, the Nasty Podcast. My name is Beatrice and I'm here as always with Heather and Elizabeth. And this is the second episode of our Witches series. Can we call it series? Yeah, we'll call that it we're a doing, series. We can call it a series. That we're doing for Halloween. Last time we talked a lot about uh, the like witch hunts in Europe. So it was a very bloody episode. We talked a lot about men and their penises and all the fear surrounding it. And just penises that live in boxes and eat corn and oats. Yeah. Right. Which is yeah, which we we yeah we all have a box of penises at home that we feed with oats. So, because why not? I mean, who doesn't who doesn't need that in their lives, right? So, um, <laughs> and today we are going to talk about witches in fairy tale and myth. Yes. Are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. Ready. Okay, ready, Freddy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> Like, I know that we've mentioned this before, uh, obviously I've mentioned it before, but the Greek and Roman myth is kind of my wheelhouse here. And so Elizabeth's going to take over the fairy tale aspect of things, but I want to say a little bit more about, or a little bit about Greek and Roman myth from an academic standpoint, rather than just the observer of fairy tales, because fairy tales are awesome too. But, uh, oh, they yeah, are. They are. They're pretty cool. And still uh, very important culturally, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the theme of the witch is something that, uh, the Greeks and Romans were no strangers with. Uh, they absolutely were familiar with witches. Witches and ancient myth come in different forms, but the most famous ones that I'm going to discuss are certainly not depicted as old or ugly. Uh, not that there aren't nasty, scary, ugly witches in classic myth, but there are beautiful ones too, which I suppose only serves to help them use their erotic magic that they're familiar with, because that's a common theme. Mm. But the I feel like we kind of owe it to the goddess Hecate to talk about her first. She was a goddess who was associated with things like witchcraft, necromancy, ghosts, and the moon. And she generally sounds like a complete boss-ass lady. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I mean, in other words, she's the perfect goddess that we should be discussing here during the Halloween season. Um, as far as her imagery goes, she's shown with torches because she was one of the very few who could travel between all three realms. That's Olympus, the mortal realm of Earth, and the underworld. She also sometimes is depicted in a triple aspect. I don't know if you've heard of the triple goddess, but that is uh, Hecate or Hecate inspired. Um, but she's regarded in the triple aspect when she's referred to as the goddess of the crossroads. Her name shows up on curse tablets, which are so fascinating. Curse tablets from the ancient world. And 
she's really just pretty interesting. And I would say she's actually my favorite goddess from the classical world. I have a statue of her in the triple form, actually, which I have here today while we record. You need to take a picture of it. We're going to upload it on Instagram. You have to look at it. It's pretty amazing. Yes. I did upload it as a teaser to our Facebook page. So we'll have to move that over to Instagram. But yes, or I can take a better picture. So you can see all sides because it's tough to capture the triple aspect with just one photo. That's true. But yeah, I thought that she should sit next to us while we record this. It just only seems fitting. Yeah, that's very good. So she normally had a knee-length gown or a long gown. And she had two familiars, if you will. A polecat, which is a ferret-type creature, um, and a black she-dog. Both of those animals were previously humans and were transformed. They have a whole myth behind them too, but they were transformed prior to their adoption as Hecate's familiars. Mm -hmm. Hecate, I I guess I should preface that Greek and Roman myth, they're pretty convoluted. The family trees are very, very intertwined. And depending on the author, sometimes people are related to one other person and another author says, no, 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 they had a different sister or brother or mother or father or whatever. But for the sake of this, I this particular podcast, I think that we should go by what uh, the author Diodorus said. And he explained that in at least his writing that Hecate had daughters. And those daughters, I think everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but I would like to think that everyone is familiar with her daughters were Circe, who is the witch known for transforming mm-hmm. Odysseus's men into swine in Homer's epic, The Odyssey. And then Medea. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes. Oh, yes. Now, um, like I said, not all authors have those female characters connected in the same way. But even if you don't go by his particular family tree, there are still connections that can can be made. Those two witches can be connected back to Hecate one way or another. So anyway, the witch Circe, she lived on an island called Aiaia. And when Odysseus was trying to find his way home and he ended up on her island, he was trapped for about a year with her. And depending on the depiction of the situation, she turns his men into various animals via a drugged potion, a wand, and a spell of sorts. She transforms them back with an ointment, and she's depicted as being able to make herself invisible or um, send her soul out into the air for travel. She has erotic magic, which is what helped keep Odysseus with her for so long, even though he wished to be home with his wife. Um, and she also knows necromancy, which she discusses with Odysseus for his journey to the underworld when he needs to consult the blind, blind prophet Tiresias. I think that's really fascinating that so many of the th- like turning people into animals is such is something that we see like throughout yep. these kind of folk yep. tales too. I mean, myths are obviously mm-hmm. different from folk tales in in a lot of ways, but I think it's interesting how that. Um, how that carries through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a manipulation of the natural world. Yeah, we still find it, like up until this day, when you think about the 2014 Disney version of Maleficent, where the Maleficent is kind of an evil feral, fairy, fairy, but she's also kind of a witch. She, a lot of, of the depictions, or a lot of, of many aspects of the way she's depicted kind of refer, reference back to witch, to depictions of witches. And she also mm-hmm. transforms a man into a raven. And I think it's very interesting mm-hmm. that it's particularly cats and ravens who are very often kind of depicted as the animals that witches mm-hmm. surround themselves with that are kind of dark, spiritual creatures in a sense also. But yeah. I actually actually have a question for you, Heather, because you were, talk- were yeah. talking about Hecate as kind of this triple goddess. Is, mm-hmm. is there any like link between the triple goddess Hecate and the Christian, uh, the, what's it called? The Trinity. Yeah. Thank you. Is that something that Uh, refers back to Hecate in some way or is that not? Can, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I guess it's possible. You think that the triple goddess aspect of her, when they are linking her to the crossroads, she can go between three realms. She's the one, the only one who can go between, I guess, heaven and the underworld. So, um, it would be interesting if she was, I mean, if they at least took that, like, three people in one idea, because they did take so many things Completely. from pagan beliefs and, and sure. kind of just modify them for Christianity. I think it would be really interesting, you know, like, uh, Easter, yeah. obviously. We, we, we talked about if that. If you want to go back and look at our, our Easter episode. episode, 
you can find out more yeah. about that. But yeah. also, I mean, even in the Christian idea of Trinity, we have um, God, who is like this kind of an all-encompassing superior being. But then via Jesus, he is able to be also part of the human world. So we also have the sense of like three different spheres being accessed via this trinity if that makes sense so it's kind of a similar idea i think i think there's just a there's a fascination with the triple aspect of anything there yeah. are other yeah um later on in rome there was uh like the, the capitoline triad which had three gods mm. well, i think one goddess and two gods um there's just this fascination with three aspects yeah um, which is a whole different study on its own but uh, there's definitely a hecate and um Dionysus if you search back between those two religions and the followings they're not that far different there's there's linking with certain ways that that rituals performed or whatever and Mm -hmm. there's definitely a connection between Dionysus and the depiction of Jesus so um and so when you're thinking about trying to bring people into your religion and make it a little more appealing it's certainly not far-fetched to think that they may have taken some yeah, completely from any of the deities actually to try to you know convert pagans or entice them over yeah. to their side and so hecate um was very similar to to ideas of witches in other places and other times but she was worshipped as a goddess right so she was not yes thought of as an evil evil witch yeah, she was. She's a goddess. Um, I'm not saying that she's not a goddess to be feared, because there's definitely a balance. Yeah, 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 yeah. That in the ancient world as well. But yeah, she was definitely a goddess of, of witchcraft. She was. She's not one of the twelve Olympian deities. Not one of the more famous ones, I guess. But she definitely served her place, and she yeah. was important because she helped Demeter get down to the underworld to see her daughter after she was taken, or yeah, mm-hmm. by Hades. So she she definitely serves her purpose, and I think. I could be wrong, but I feel like the only other deity that has the ability to travel is Hermes, the messenger. I think he can travel between the realms, mm-hmm. but really that's it. Mm-hmm. So she wields a lot of power and is and it is important. And I think also to be feared, though, because um, there was a fear of crossroads in general. I think a little bit of a hesitation with um, ancient peoples. They just didn't know. There was uncertainty there. Um, there could be spirits lingering. Yeah. So... And that's where you go to call for the devil. Yeah. I mean, even, and we'll talk about this a little bit later with Faust, but he went out to the crossroads to call for, for evil spirits, to call for the devil. And it's until this day, it is a part of some like rituals and stuff like that. If you haven't listened to our last episode, then you should do that now because there we talk about an, a ritual that you have to do to bind Donald Trump. And one of the aspects of the ritual is afterwards you need to throw things away at a crossroads. So again, yes. this aspect of the crossroads is something that comes up in a lot of like spiritual or magical ritual traditions, I think. Yeah, and I think, again, it's the whole idea of because she had power and we were uncertain about crossroads, that maybe she wasn't the one that was worshipped all the time or one that they may have even not looked at very fondly for people to worship over other deities, mm-hmm. but one that you shouldn't cross in any way. That's why I'm saying she's probably one to be feared. But the, yeah, the idea of the crossroads, um, was it Robert Johnson? Is that right? The name of the blues singer guitarist who went to the crossroads to ask the devil for the ability to play the guitar. Is that his name? I have no idea. Robert Johnson. Yes. Yeah. But I always think of Jack Black. Um, do you know the the one where they sing the song about they met the devil and they played the best song in the world, but this is just a tribute to that song. Like they don't sing the song. It's worth seeing the video. Yeah. Jack Black. Yeah. It's so yeah. Anyway, so we were talking about, we were talking about Circe. And so now we should talk about Medea, her sister or somewhat distant relation, depending on which author you read. But Medea was a witch from Colchis who ultimately betrayed her family due to her infatuation with Jason the jason guys yeah jason from jason the argonauts you might have heard of him but uh jason he sails his way to her kingdom and he needs the golden fleece in order to get some power back home and the only way to get this golden fleece is that he has to complete a handful of tasks that are pretty much impossible but 
Medea's on his side because she loves him. Aww. And she uses her magic to make these more doable tasks. And he ends up completing them all successfully. Now, some discussions of this story have her killing her own brother before she flees with Jason. Because she knew that that would like slow her dad down in their pursuit. Because um, he'd want to give him find all of his like in one of them she rips her brother into several pieces and then the dad has to find that him. is very rude yeah it's yeah. not a nice thing to do it is very rude yes um, but anyway she <laughs> she leaves with Jason and she employs magic later on in her myth she has lots of bloodshed to help secure the power for Jason and anyway the whole trade off was that since she helped him and she loves him that he was to marry her. And they would have children together, which they do. But Jason is kind of hung up on this whole power thing. And he falls in love with another woman. Who I believe is the daughter of a king or something. Now she ripped her brother apart for nothing. Jason. 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 Classic, Jason. classic Jason. But yeah, so Jason fell in love with another woman. And Medea, in her anger, used poison to kill this other woman. And the other woman's father. She like, uh, I think it, there was like, like a crown or something, a garland that she dipped in poison. And then at least according to Euripides, then she says, well, that's not enough. She goes ahead and kills her own children. Um, um, those people are intense. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, she, she kills her own children for revenge. Um, and then she flees Corinth after that using magic along the way. And depending on what tradition you hear, she either makes amends with her father or she moves to a new location and lives amongst its people. Or she takes a fiery chariot to live indefinitely with Helios, who, again, depending on the tradition, is grandfather or father or whatever, um, cousin, I don't know. Like, changes their name, moves out of town. But <laughs> I think Medea needs to calm the fuck down. I think she's a bit too intense. I think yeah. she is. What was interesting is, <laughs> I, if I recall correctly, on our evil at our Evil Women conference that we attended a year ago, guys it was a year ago a year ago yeah was that there was a discussion about Medea currently there's still I don't know if you want to say worship so much as just an appreciation of Medea Mm. in certain areas of Europe but they kind of leave out the whole infanticide thing they just skip over that she's a hero yeah I thought her I thought her paper was really interesting because she was saying she was from Georgia and she was talking about how in the Georgian tradition, yes. she's actually like really venerated as a, as a heroine and they leave the infanticide thing out and that the infanticide might have been added to her story as a way of like disparaging her name by other cultures. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think Euripides was the one who came up with it, but Euripides is it's his tragedy is the one that kind of really solidified yeah. that story of infanticide. Yeah. Um, and that was later. I mean, like, as with any of these myths, there are so many layers to them through time. But she had her own myth prior to the whole killing her kids bit that was added on later. Yeah. We should probably explain for a second what we're actually talking about. Because we, the four of us, Elizabeth, Heather, Bethany, who's not here with us today, mm-hmm. me, we met at a conference last year. And the conference was about evil women and portrayals of women as evil yes. and stuff like yes, that. Yes, and we met actually... We should say that our conference was just a few days after the autumn equinox. So I got to go to Stonehenge and uh, hang out with some druids oh God, yeah. for the autumn equinox, and then it's hop so over cool. to Oxford. Yeah, it was a pretty. It was a pretty magical time for me. In my yeah, life. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it was an amazing conference, and it took place in Oxford in this amazing Mansfield, like in the amazing buildings of the Mansfield mm-hmm. College, which was so beautiful. Yes, was. We all felt like we were at Hogwarts. Yes. <laughs> And witches ourselves, um, but one one of the papers that were given at the conference was about Medea. So this is what we were talking about. So that just oh, you, yes. you have a bit of context. Absolutely, that, that you know what we're talking about. Okay. Yes, but yeah. So wrapping up Medea, there are other witches that were in classical myth as well. We find witches in Ovid's Metamorphoses and Apuleius's Golden Ass. Um, the the witch Pamphile is uh, the wife of one of the characters in there she can shapeshift among other things and we've got Propertius, Tobolus, Petronius, Lucan among other Latin authors have witches within them of course we've got Greek authors as well because the Romans did not invent this stuff Theocritus, Euripides, Theodorus for example and the biggest thing is that these witches what they have in common is they manipulate the natural world they can shapeshift they can animate the dead they chant spells they employ erotic magic they use potions lots of like witchy like things are happening here And I'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes, but one of the best books that I have found regarding um, ancient texts 
is a source book called Magic, Witchcraft, and Ghosts in the Greek and Roman Worlds oh. by Daniel Ogden. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that nice. Circe is on the cover, actually. That looks amazing. Yeah, it's really awesome. As soon as I saw it, I put it on my Christmas list one year, and my mother-in-law bought it for me. So I was super excited about that. But um, I'm a huge fan of source books because I prefer to read the primary sources rather than what other people kind of put on it in a modern aspect. Like any decent yeah. scholarship. Heather's doing it right. Thank you. <laughs> but it's also nice that the author, Ogden, provides summaries of the primary sources. That's also appreciated because even in some of them, he references things that aren't necessarily in this book. For instance, on this one about necromancy, he explains that there's other evidence for skull necromancy that isn't quite outlined here, but is referenced in something else. So he really covers his base as well. And I appreciate that very much as a scholar, classical scholar. But yeah, so that... It's kind of wrapping it up for me as far as the myths go. I mean, there's lots of witches. We could go into this a little longer. And uh, like I said, some of them are to be feared. And, uh, well, they're all to be feared. But I mean, some of them are ugly and decrepit looking and scary, like you would think of witches today. And mm. that is actually yeah. a great transition to witches in fairy tales. Yes. Um, because most of the witches in fairy tales, even if they are beautiful to start out with, they end up being decrepit old ladies. Yeah, that's like Medusa. Medusa was beautiful and then was turned ugly because a goddess was pissed, even though it wasn't her fault. Exactly. Or they end up dying terrible deaths. So... Harvard professor and fairy tales expert Maria Tatar says, in reference to witches and fairy tales, like, what do we have? Nags, witches, evil stepmothers, cannibals, ogres. It's quite dreadful. So even though women, particularly old women, are often the source of, of evil in fairy tales, old women are also powerful, and they're often the ones who can kind of work magic. Witches commonly appear in fairy tales as decrepit, usually hideous elderly women with wrinkles, warts, hunchbacks, long noses, bony hands. Um, we don't often get all of these like lengthy descriptions in the fairy tales themselves, but, but it's what we imagine, right. particularly when we have these new interpretations of them in pop culture through Disney versions of, or, or even, you know, fairy tale classics or, you know, what have And you. I think a lot of like the, the, the visual as like how we imagine witches, I think is, a, is, is really, uh, the most important influence on that is Disney, I think, because even if you look at other versions of the tales, like the, the Grimm's version, in that context, I want, also want to mention that the Grimm's texts are not the originals. There are no originals to fairy tales. It's just like, they just, there are no originals. They were oral tales. They were passed on, and then they just decided to write them down. And usually they decided to write down a very sanitized clean up version of those tales because usually they were a lot bloodier than <laughs> and a lot more sexual than what the Grimm's then decided to write down. But Jesus, the, the Grimm's tales are still pretty bloody. I know, I know. <laughs> but they were worse. <laughs> no, but what I what I want to say is that a lot of what we now understand as Grimm's Tales mm -hmm. is very often the Disney version of it. So I think it was hugely culturally important. So in a lot of this visual idea of the witch with the hooked nose which is also in a way a, an anti-semitic stereotype that i'm not going to get into now but it's also it refers back to anti-semitic stereotypes like the old lady the with the one with the wrinkle the ugly one you know all of that is to a large extent the disney version of the witch Sure. I recently presented on kind of the evolution of the evil queen in, yeah. um, in Snow White. Amazing. Because, I, because it was the 75th anniversary of Snow White. So one study that's actually come out really recently, and it was by, in the Journal of Dermatology for hmm. like Interesting. randomly. Yeah. But they were looking at, um, at evil and skin disorders and how they are represented in pop culture. And typically any evil figure is represented as having some sort of a skin disorder, whether it's warts or like right. oddly colored skin or weird like rashes oh, or you know, what have you. That, they yeah. are typically considered as having, and even if you look at like at, um, at Star Wars, Darth Vader, when he takes off the mask, he has this terrible scar across his face, like scarring 
warts, all of those things are all dermatological uh, malformations of the body. And mm -hmm. that we can see in dermatology and in society that anybody who is physically different is often considered evil. Mm -hmm. And pop culture is kind of to blame for that. Mm. So thanks, dermatologists, for, for looking yeah. into that for us. And then also another aspect, of course, is ageism, oh, right? Yes. So it's usually old women who are portrayed as witches. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting with some of that stuff is uh, taking Snow White as an example. If you look at the fairy tale itself, the evil queen, she's actually really beautiful. Um, the yes. reason that she starts going after Snow White is because Snow White is now the more beautiful yeah. one and she's losing her beauty as she ages, which is a terrible message to be sending to like middle-aged women, but whatever. Yeah. But when she turns herself evil, both in the in the Disney cartoon as well as in the story, she's when she turns herself into like an old peddler woman, she's doing it to gain Snow White's trust. Mm. So there is a sense that like older women can be trusted. Yeah. Um, they're harmless. They're harmless. They're harmless. They, yeah. Exactly. This harmless <laughs> old woman, like she can't possibly do anything bad to me. It's a nice, nice old granny. Yeah. Exactly. But then when you look at fairy tale versions like Snow White and the Huntsman and, and even Mirror Mirror, which is kind of a comedic version of it, um, mm -hmm. she's really trying to stave off old age. And mm. the reason that she becomes like ugly at the end of the story is because she's no longer able to take the essence from all of these younger girls and mm -hmm. take them into her, her body to, to maintain her youth. So she still maintains her like youth up until the end and then she loses and has to become ugly because Max Luthi describes that fairy tales have very little depth to them. It's mostly just a surface story and we have like basically the core story mm -hmm. and then it's very simplistic. Beauty is assigned with good and ugliness is assigned with evil. And if someone is beautiful on the outside yet evil on the inside, by the end of the story, that person is going to be ugly on the outside too. Or mm -hmm destroyed in some way so one very important aspect also when it comes to age is the aspect of motherhood and motherliness and maternity because and i'm now thinking since we talked about snow white i'm now thinking about the disney version of snow white where we have snow white portrayed as a very not she's not a mother but she's a very maternal character when you think about how she cares for the dwarves and all of that so she is the one who would be a very perfect mother in like a patriarchal framework yes and then we have the evil witch the wicked witch who probably won't be a mother anymore because she's probably already post-menopausal mm -hmm. post well know? because she's aging and so yeah. yes of course yeah so there's also there's also a link between the idea of idealized femininity and the propensity to be a mother. So as idealized femininity as also motherliness. Well, and a lot of these stories are very much tied to the maturation process. Yes. So Snow White has to die or die this like imagined death. Yeah. She doesn't actually die. She just is like she just has a piece of apple stuck in her throat. If you go by, <laughs> by the, the Grimm's yeah. version. Which, like, then they put her in a glass coffin and a dude comes by and is like, hey, can I buy that dead woman that's, like, preserved in that glass coffin? And they're like, sure, dude, take her. And then it jostles it around and, like, the piece yeah. of apple comes out of her throat and she wakes up and he's like, ooh, this is a bonus. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, in the Disney version, she is kissed back to life, which also says a lot right. about... Exactly. I yeah. mean, these virginal women, they're coming into their sexuality, but not in a way that's threatening, no, 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 but no. In, in a way that means that they're going to be mothers. Yes, and they're coming into their sexuality also from a very passive you know uh, yes. um how would you say that they're very passive they're basically comatose you know so yes it's not active I mean, sexuality the sleeping beauty is the same thing Absolutely. like she sleeps for a hundred years and by the time she comes like like the hundred years are up like she's starting to wake up and like she's finally sexually mature after a hundred years i mean most people most parents want to keep their children like pure and innocent for a long time but like a hundred years come on yeah yeah and i think what's also i think what's also important is that we are now talking about the culturally most prevalent versions of those tales so we're talking about the grims yes. and the Perrault's version of them mm -hmm. but there are also other yeah. versions of Snow White for example where the queen is jealous of Snow White because she is with a guy that the, the queen also wants to be with and stuff like that so there are many many versions of Snow White where the story is completely different than what Grimm and Disney you know absolutely and in and in the Italian yeah. version of Sleeping Beauty Don Röschen she ends up in this castle 
and she is asleep and the the yeah. he comes in yes. and has sex with her yes. while she's asleep. Yes, it is asleep. a rape story. Yes. And then she has mm-hmm. the baby and then the baby goes to suckle on her and 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 because she still has a piece of flax stuck in her finger that was like magical and keeping her asleep and then the baby sucks the flax out of her finger and she wakes up and then yeah. a bird takes the baby wow. away. And I think you're talking about um Sun Moon and Talia by Giambattista Basile is that what you're talking about? That's right. Yeah. That is exactly. Right. So and and there are many versions of of Sleeping Beauty where it's not a kiss that wakes her up as in Disney and Grimm uh, Peru version, but it is she's raped by the prince. She's raped in her sleep, basically. Yeah, but that doesn't wake her up. I mean, no, what no, no, wakes no, no, her no. up is like something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she's raped in her sleep. It's not like a, a prince comes yeah. and kisses her awake. You wow. know. But that's kind of the Absolutely. that's the sanitized version that that we that we now know that's cultural. Well, genre. and what I think is interesting with the Disney version is that it is actually the kiss that wakes her up yep. in the, in the grim version. And even in the parole version, what, what you have is like the time is up. It yep. just so happens that this prince came at the correct time. Yes. But really it was a spell that was supposed to last for a hundred years. Time is up. He just happens to be there at the right time. Oh yes. And that it's says something that about anything special. Oh yeah. And that says something about how Disney then, you know, centers their stories around romance, mm-hmm. which is also something yes. that doesn't really happen that much in fairy tales. You know, when Absolutely. you think about, even when you think about uh, The Little Mermaid, for example, where in the Hans Christian Andersen version, mm-hmm. uh, she is interested in the world of the humans first. So she wants yes. to have, the, the reason why she wants to be human is she wants to have an immortal soul because at the moment she doesn't have one. And then the Disney versions is because she likes that guy who happens to be a human, you know? And so, and I think it's also interesting that like Ursula, the, the sea hag, she plays a very minimal role in Hans Christian Andersen's version. Oh, yes, and she's I mean, not as evil. We're talking about witches. Yeah. Um, you know, she plays a, a very minimal role there, but it was an expanded role in, in the Disney version because, very, she, very. It, you know, they need that kind of conflict between mm-hmm. women. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, uh, she has a much more central role in Disney, but also she's much more evil uh, than in the yeah. oh, Hans sure. Christian Andersen version. So in the Hans Christian yeah. Andersen version, in some aspects, she's also kind of an old wise lady, I think. And in the Disney, ah, the old wise lady. <laughs> and in the Disney version, she's w- w- vile and wicked. But also, yeah. I think you know, interestingly, in Disney, we have three very evil women figures before Ursula. In the so-called classic phase, so we have the uh, the evil stepmother in Snow White, and then we have Maleficent and the old wicked stepmother in Cinderella. So we have three wicked ladies and we have at the center of the stories that conflict between, again, and when you listen to the other episode that we made on witches, this dichotomy between like a young virginal pure woman and an old evil, you know, dark woman that's also sometimes kind of a spinster character, Absolutely. you know. But then, and the last in that series for a long time, interestingly, is Ursula. Because after Ursula in Disney, we have evil male characters who are very much queer characters in many ways mm-hmm. so it's interesting because you said they need at the center to have this conflict between a good woman and a bad woman that's not completely true because Ursula is the last one in that series yeah but in fairy tales yeah that's what we had primarily yeah. in fairy tales what we have that's what we have often it's the stepmother or it's another witch that they encounter you occasionally get a, a male, you, you will get a father who sends his daughter off to, to be married to someone. And sometimes that will be very, a very bad situation, like the yeah. um, like <laughs> Bluebeard. Bluebeard type thing. But, but t- typically, it's, yes. it's a young woman pitted against an older yes, woman, and yes, the older yes, woman yes, is yes. often a And the reason why, and I think you can say some things about that, is that it's kind of a a symbolic for the sure. the conflict between a child and their mother, right? Because fairy tales are symbolic stories in many ways. Yeah, they're very mm-hmm. surface level mm-hmm. in in terms of their symbolism. But yes, I mean it's often the growth of the daughter and her pulling away from the family. And in in a lot of the stories, the Grimm's change things yes. from being a mother to being a stepmother because of this desire to to split the kind of I mean, if we're looking at it in psychoanalytic terms, the, the, the good bad. mother from yeah, the yeah, yeah. from the bad mother, mm-hmm. and really needing for children to trust their mm-hmm. mothers. 
Yeah. <laughs> but also know that, you know, bad things mm-hmm. happen. There's mm-hmm. a lot of different layers and a lot of different ways that we can kind of interpret these fairy tales, psychoanalytic, yes. historical, yeah. um, and symbolic. You know, it's really, I want to interject something here. It's really interesting. You were talking about the dichotomy between the young mm-hmm. virginal woman and then the old crone or different ways to see women in general. What does crone mean? Crone, like an old okay. hag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was thinking back to when we were talking about Hecate and the classical realm, and I mentioned the triple goddess. If you talk about neo-paganism now, and they are, if they worship the triple goddess, which would be the like incarnation of Hecate right now, when she's the triple goddess, she takes on all three forms mm-hmm. of the maiden the mother and the crone, that is the triple aspect oh, wow. of okay. womanhood, I sure, guess. it's all three um, stages. So it's, yeah. yeah, so it's kind of like a reclamation, I feel, of the things that we are seeing in some of these stories of some things are good, some things are bad, but we, as Hecate, can have all of it, and it's something to be something to be celebrated, yeah. really. Sure, there's no celebration when we get to the Grimm. Oh, I no. mean, the celebration, oh, yeah. I mean, particularly of the witches. So the Wicked Witch or Old Crone is really kind of the standard for fairy tales, and they're usually magically malevolent. Man, that's hard mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and they pop up <laughs> often in fairy tales. So in Hansel and Gretel, we have a witch who builds a house of can't a blind witch which i'm going to come back to that with you and heather yeah, yeah, in just yeah, a yeah. second yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> who builds a house of candy in the woods to entrap little entrap little children and as soon as the child like falls into her hand she kills it cooks it and eats yeah. it and here we have blind witches blind witches it reminds me of the three witches that shared an eye. Oh, yeah, the gray eye. Yeah, yeah, they, they could see, they could foresee things. And I forget what uh, what myth exactly that was a part of the guy on the Pegasus. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so he needed some, um, some assistance, and they were like three witches and all. And this is where we come into the yes. ugly witches. Mm. They, these were very ugly. They shared one eye, one tooth. And perhaps one mouth? I can't remember, but it was like three three mm-hmm. things, and they shared three of one singular thing. And so in order to see when he came about, they had to sh- take their eye yes. and share it. Um, but yes, that's absolutely... Yeah, so the, the blind witch thing, you know, is very much tying into kind of older traditions of blind witches tricking children eating children just as we yeah. talked about in our previous episode that they're trying to eat children eat unbaptized babies themselves. yeah and actually babies. actually exactly. i think that also ties in with what we said about motherhood and and the witches as kind of a subversion of the mother figure because traditionally you know the ideal mother feeds their baby but in many fairy tales that's kind of really perverted in that the mother doesn't feed the baby but she actually eats the baby and um, in 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 Snow White, there's there's even more to that because in the Grimm's version, let's put it that way, the the evil queen wants the hunter to bring her the liver and the lung, and she she wants those uh, to be prepared for her to be eaten by her. And in the in the Disney version, that's kind of sanitized, and we don't really know what she wants to do with the heart. She wants the heart to be brought to her, and we don't know what she wants to do with it. So we have this subversion of the mother actually instead of feeding her child, she eats her child. But then there's a second there's a second instance of that where she feeds her child, but she feeds her poison. So I think one very important aspect of many fairy tales is that motherliness is so much at the center of it and how it's trans- transgressed and subverted and perverted by the evil woman. Absolutely. And I think Hansel and Gretel is also a really good example Absolutely. of this because in the original story from the original version that the Grimm's wrote down in 1812, it's actually the mother and father who are there and the mother, because they're starving, says we need to get rid of the kids. Like we, mm-hmm. we don't have enough food for yep. them. Like send them out into the forest and get rid of them. And the father is like, I don't know if I want to do this. Um, and he does it basically like three times and the third time the kids end up in the forest. So the mother is the the evil figure. And by the time we get to 1857 with the final version that they published, it's a stepmother. Yeah. Uh, because nobody wants to think of their mother leaving the kids out in the middle of the forest yeah. to die. Yep, 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 but yep, yep. still, we have this stepmother at the beginning who's not a witch. But then we do encounter a witch who brings the children in and then betrays them in exactly the same way yeah. that the mother has betrayed the children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they're mm-hmm. but they're super tricky, and one of the great things that they do is they push her into the fire oven, yeah, and, <laughs> and yeah. like the evil witch, they push her into the fire and get rid of her, and it's fantastic. Yeah. So again, the witch is burned in the end, right? 
the witches burned in the end. There you go. We also have witches in fairy tales that transform their stepchildren or stepmothers who transform their stepchildren into swans out of jealousy, as in the fairy tale, the six swans. Mm -hmm. Um, So that goes along with the earlier in this episode. Yeah. The witches transforming them into animals. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then we have the witch in Rapunzel. The father comes over to her property to steal some lettuce because the mother is pregnant and has this like craving for Rapunzel, which is a type of lettuce. And the witch forces the father to give up the daughter. Mm-hmm. Then she locks the daughter in a tower. And when she discovers that the girl has been sneaking a prince in to see her, she banishes Rapunzel to the wilderness where she lives like a m- miserable and wretched state. Though, I, to be fair... Rapunzel was pretty happy in the tower as long as she was ignorant of the fact that there were other yes. people there. I mean, she didn't actually want for anything as long as she was ignorant. Exactly, that's the point, I think. The problem becomes that when when the prince starts to come up, particularly in the early versions of the stories, she mentions to the witch uh, at some point, why are my clothes getting so tight? And it's because she's pregnant. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Which that part gets, like, erased from a later version. But then she has to, like, wander the countryside uh, and ends up in the desert with twins. Wow. Yeah. And you're like, How do, where do these twins come from? I don't know where these twins came from. And, you know, I mean, in many ways. Not the Disney version of Tangled. No, 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 no. I just wanted to say two things. So in some ways, she's happy in the tower because she's ignorant. So it's kind of Plato's allegory of the cave yeah. in some sense. And then the interesting thing about the Disney version is that they turn Gothel into Mother Gothel. So she becomes kind of a... So we again have a stepmother character, which wasn't there before Disney. So all of a sudden, now she's kind of a mother again. So we have the evil stepmother again. Yeah, I mean, she was like Frau Gothel, I think, in the in the mm-hmm. fairy tale. But yeah, I mean, she's definitely not No, but not now mother. she's Mother Gothel in the Disney versions. And we have <laughs> yeah. a very interesting... So if you haven't watched the Disney version of, of Rapunzel, which is called Tangled... You should really do because it's a very interesting depiction of of mother motherhood or, or of a mother, um, which ties into a lot of fairy tale cliches and also Disney cliches. So both, it's, it's very interesting because we have like this overbearing mother who doesn't want to let her go, and it's also a much more complex mother figure than we had before. I think because she's not just evil. I mean, maybe we could debate that, but no, no, she's yeah. not. There's more yeah. to her. There, she's more yeah, complex. Yeah. I think one of the great things that we see about these stories, though, is that because they are very simplistic in their message, good prevails over evil. If you're clever and smart, you can overcome. Wicked, evil people are typically punished at the end. And so often this entails a witch being burned at the, to ashes at a stake or other various punishments. Yeah. So the punishments can be pretty inventive. So in Snow White, the stepmother attends the wedding of uh, Snow White and her prince and is put in glowing hot iron shoes and dances herself to death. In a Disney version, she just dies because of an accident. (laughs) Yes, like a rock falls on her. Yeah, which is not what happens in the Grimm's version. The Grimm's version is much more gruesome. Oh, absolutely. The wicked mother-in-law in in the Twelve Brothers is put into a barrel filled Mm. with boiling oil Mm -hmm. and poisonous snakes. I'm not sure how the snake yeah. survived the boiling oil, <laughs> Again, but whatever. Rude. It's magic. It's rude. Yes. It's very rude. And the story adds kind of unnecessarily that she died a painful death. Oh, really? No kidding. She died. <gasps> I a thought she had death. fun. And and one of the best descriptions at, of the ending of a wicked crone comes at the end of Hansel and Gretel, where you can almost hear like the glee of the narrator mm. when he says, "Gretel gave her a big shove that sent her sprawling. Then she shut the iron door and bolted it." Phew! The witch began screeching dreadfully, but Gretel ran off, and the and the godless witch burned to death in a horrible way. Well, nice. nice. Yeah. Problem solved. I mean, we have kind of notes of this, like how to kill a witch from uh from historical yeah. record, right? You know, you have to burn yeah. the witch. You have to put the witch in burning boiling oil. You have to yes. do all of these things to get rid of the witch. Um, And it's particularly interesting because fairy tale stories themselves, even though these versions from the Grimm's and others were written in the early 19th or other versions written in the 18th and and 17th century, they're almost always set in kind of the medieval, early modern time period. So anything that we can say about witches of the historical record from the early modern period is then just pulled forward into these stories from the Romantic period and the Enlightenment and, yeah. and beyond. And so we talked about how there is never like a definite version of fairy tales and they always keep changing. And even now they're, they're keeping 
you know, they, they keep changing, even in our time. So the, the versions that we tell keep changing. And I, I also said that a lot of that is influenced by Disney today. And, but even Disney, interestingly, Disney versions of tales are changing. When you think about Sleeping Beauty f- from the year 1959, we have the dark fairy Maleficent. Now, we could argue about whether she's to be classified as a witch or not, but I would actually classify as a witch. I think in many ways she kind of taps into that. She kind of falls into that category. But then there's also a new version. I don't know if you've seen it. It came out in 2014. It was like a live-action CGI hybrid version with Angelina Jolie in the role of Maleficent. And it's. I think it's very interesting what Disney did there. And I think it's Disney's most feminist movie, I would argue, because they completely turn around this idea of the evil witch. And kind of the film focuses on Maleficent. So, and we learn her backstory. We learn that she turns evil or dark because she has been betrayed and violated by this patriarchal man. So the evil doer in the film is a man. It's not the witch anymore, you know, and we kind of get to know the story Mm -hmm. from the perspective of the witch and learn why she's a witch. And then what's also really amazing about that story is that she doesn't die in the end, like in the 1959 Disney version, where she also falls off a cliff, which happens to Disney villains. It's never the it's never the heroes who kill because they have to remain good until the end, right? So the, the, the villains always die by accident. But interestingly, in the end, Maleficent kind of forms a bond with with Aurora, the sleeping the Sleeping Beauty character, and they kind of fight this patriarchal system together, they bring down the uh, king, right? And they become the rulers of the realm of the fairies and the realm of humans. So it's kind of this, all of a sudden, a story that was originally a story of conflict between two women and like the Sakotomo's construction of, of femininity becomes a story of reconciliation and a story that focuses on women and a story about solidarity and cooperation between women. And I really love that. I really love that. So yeah, storytellers keep changing and there's sometimes also, uh, we sometimes also get more feminist versions of, of those stories. And I think a lot of that happens at the moment when and we will we'll talk about this in another episode where we will talk about you know which is in 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 pop culture where a lot of witch characters are not like evil wicked horrifying creatures but like there are more positive depictions now of witches and also a lot of, of feminist depictions of witches which i really like yeah absolutely so a couple more witches before we get to probably one of the biggest witch celebrations in european mm-hmm, history but mm-hmm. the baba yaga is from, uh, do, do you all know who Baba Yaga is? I do Yes. You actually get a bit of her in Dragon Ball Z as well okay. as <laughs> Russian literature, but she is primarily like the, the witch mm-hmm. of Russian literature. Hmm. And she is pretty scary. So she's bony with a hooked nose and long iron teeth. Her hut stands on chicken legs and she kidnaps children and eats them. Huh. And she's basically all throughout yeah. Eastern Europe. The main story that we know her from, though she's throughout all of Russian fairy tales, is the mm-hmm. Vasilisa story which is basically like the Russian Cinderella. And so a mean stepmother sends the young girl to Baba Yaga's hut in the woods to get a candle, like assuming (laughs) that she's going to be eaten, right? Of course. Um, The girl is pretty sure she's going to be sent to her death, and Baba Yaga forces her to cook and clean, and Vasilisa does everything she's told, and in the end, the old crone gives her what she needs, and she is sent home. Hmm. So in this case, she proves that she is a good child and a good girl and is allowed to go home. But we have actually in Japanese folklore a really similar woman. So she is Yama Uba. I've never heard of that. An equally kind of ambiguous old woman. And she's a mountain witch who, like Baba Yaga, lures people into her hut it's and a eats co- them. It's a theme that comes up over and over again, right? Luring people into your hut and eating them. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. She, she'll she also help lost travelers. That's nice. Does she help them to eat them? Or just... Does she... <laughs> no, she helps them to help oh, them. Oh, it's nice. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I didn't yeah. expect that. Yeah, so... <laughs> Noriko Reeder, a professor at Miami University in Ohio, has done extensive research on the Yamauba stories and says that she brings fortune and happiness. She can also bring death and destruction to those who are not very good. So again, if you're bad, bad things happen to you. If you're yeah. good, you will be rewarded even by the worst of witches. This is like Krampus, right, Beatrice? You, if you're yeah. good, there's nothing no, to Krampus, fear. Krampus does not reward you. 
does not reward you. Yeah, but if you're good, he'll leave you be, right? He'll he'll ignore yeah. you. That's the best you get. He'll ignore you. <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, Krampus is like in the Ger- <laughs> southern Germany has uh, either well, what my dad had was uh, Knecht Ruchert, yep. which was like a small little dude who traveled around with with Saint Nicholas, and then would just like put them in a sack and beat them with reeds. But that's you know? but that's the nicer version of Krampus. That's the nicer version. Because Krampus takes you to hell. (laughs) Yes, Krampus is uh, is the Austrian, like, hell That's what we do in Austria. And I just, because when you were talking about, like, Baba Yaga and all of that, I was, like, laughing on the inside because it's, like, in America, you have kind of the elf on the shelf. In Austria and in Europe, we have Krampus. (laughs) You have, like, Americanized versions of Snow White where they just fall off cliffs here. We let the witches dance in hot shoes until they die, you know, like. <laughs> well, not only that, but like, if you look at Cinderella, at the end of Cinderella, like, there are no witches. Well, there's only a good, uh, like, a imagined good tree witch type thing yeah. in Cinderella in the German fairy tale. But at the end, first of all, the ladies have to cut off pieces of their feet in order to get them to fit in the shoes. And then at the very end, the evil stepsisters get their eyes picked yes. out by yes. birds. Welcome to Europe. Europe is an amazing place to be. America always yeah. has the Mickey Mouse version of everything. It's just boring. So, <laughs> we eat people. Listen, we lure them into huts and eat them. That's what we do. So the last thing to kind of talk about in terms of witches uh, in literature in the kind of the time period that I look at is um is this folk tale and it's kind of related to what we call witches night or walpurgisnacht or walpurgis night and the festival the current festival is in most countries that celebrate it named after the english missionary saint walpurga which was 710 to 777 779 which we don't know as walpurga's feast was held on the 1st of may and she became associated with may day the Eve of May Day is traditionally celebrated with dancing and came to be known as Valpurgisnacht, mm. like the, the night kind of leading into um, her saint's day. It's also called Hexennacht, which is the witch's night in, in German. Yeah. So the folklore is that Valpurgisnacht is the night of, of the 30th of April, May Day Eve, when witches meet on the Brocken Mountain and hold revels with the devil. So the Brocken is the highest mountain in the Harz mountain range in north central Germany, and it's noted for the phenomenon of the Brocken Spectre and for witches' revels, which uh, reputedly took place there on Walpurgisnacht. The Brocken Spectre is like a magnified shadow of an observer, typically surrounded by kind of like rainbow-like bands that's thrown onto a bank of clouds in the high mountain areas when the sun is low. And the phenomenon was first reported kind of on the Brocken. So that's what that is. And so it's a celebration is kind of like a bacchanalia of evil and demonic powers. Lovely. Sounds great. Europe. Hey. So, and actually, (laughs) it's interesting that in the last few years, Walpurgisnacht became a thing again, not like in the traditional original version, but it's became kind of a feminist holiday in in many ways. So women are starting to celebrate Walpurgisnacht again. And I kind of like the idea of it too. So I just wanted to, to mention um, that quickly. There's a book that I read recently called Drawn to the Dark Explorations and Scare Tourism Around the World mm-hmm. by Chris Kolstrom. I hope I didn't mispronounce that. Anyway, she took like a year off of work and used her savings to travel around the world to oh my God. <laughs> places uh, I, I... where there's scare tourism. That's so and cool! She took, Can yeah, we please so do she that? Was, oh my yes, God, I would sorry. love to do Go that. Ahead. She Ugh. ended up at Valpurgisnacht. Um, yeah. On, you I did a great she, job yeah. pronouncing that, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> she ended up there, and she talked about how um, she was in this little this little village, and everybody there were so many witches dressed up, and she describes actually like riding, I don't even know what you would call it, but something up the mountain, to the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And they had the whole thing throughout the the evening they had music and then people were acting out parts of faust and faust okay it seemed it was like i want to go okay yeah okay so yeah so walpurgisnacht is badass yeah. Uh, mm. The 17th century German tradition of a meeting of sorcerers and witches on Hexennacht is influenced by the description of witches' Sabbaths in the 15th and 16th century literature. Mm-hmm. And 
possibly the most famous description, as you mentioned, Heather, yeah. is the Walpurgisnacht from Goethe's Faust. Mm-hmm. So at this festival, Mephistopheles draws Faust from one from the plane of love to the sexual plane. So he's been like in love with Gretchen, and he's he's trying to like decide that whether he wants to like spend his life with Gretchen or whether he really wants to do that or how he wants to live his life. Mephistopheles takes him to this Valpogasnak to distract him from Gretchen's fate because she's about to end up getting murdered because she killed her baby. Or she's about to get like sentenced to death because she killed her baby. Mephistopheles is costumed here as like a yunka with like cloven hooves. Like, so he's got this like crazy hat and he's got cloven hooves. But he, he lures Faust in the arms of a naked young witch and he's distracted by the sight of Medusa who appears to him as his loved one's image, a lone child, pale and fair, resembling sweet Gretchen. So he keeps having these images of naked, attractive women that are that he thinks they're Gretchen, but they're not. And he's just, it's basically what you imagine a Faust being super high in the mountains, yeah. like having hallucinations and being surrounded by naked women. That's nice. It's a nice way to spend your evening. Yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I would do that in a so, second. <laughs> So yeah, so I I studied abroad when I was an undergrad in in Heidelberg, and in Heidelberg they have the Tingstätte, that is this old pagan worshiping ground oh, that really? in the Third Reich was turned into a an amphitheater for the Nazis oh, because wow. they liked to put amphitheaters yes. in places that were old pagan yeah. worshiping grounds, and for I know it, it's <laughs> awful bastards. Yeah. <laughs> But they do an awesome Walpurgisnacht there because it has this ancient energy to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to be, you have to climb the mountain to get up there. <laughs> it's like in the dark, and it's basically just people doing fire dancing, and there are bonfires everywhere, and people drinking and hanging out and just like celebrating. And then the next day on May Day, you have this really interesting juxtaposition of the May Day workers Parade, uh, parades day, and stuff like that, yeah. parades and spring celebrations with the maypole. Yeah. Hmm. So can we please go to Heidelberg on the 13th of April and take part I, in I would in love it. I Val- love yes. Heidelberg for, for Valpurgisnacht. And then, I want to go. We go to the and then live tweet from the there, please. Because I would love <laughs> to do that. I would love to, to, to do that. And then we can do an episode on the whole symbolism behind the maypole, which is also interesting in and of itself. So but that that's is, for another That episode. is interesting. But so that's what I've got in terms of fairy tales. Yeah. You know, there are witches all over fairy tales, mostly old women, mostly they die horrible, horrible death. But there still is this really deep connection with witches in throughout Europe, I yes, would say. Yes, um, yes, yes. And, and a, a desire to kind of like reclaim that power mm-hmm, in a lot of mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. Because they are women who kind of defy the patriarchal or the patriarchal norms, right? So it's still, they're still kind of a feminist symbol in many ways. And we will talk about that more later when we talk about witches in popular culture, because I think that will come up over and over again when we talk about witches. And there will be a lot more episodes about witches, you guys. Yay! Look forward to that. (laughs) Okay. So what's what's the moral of the story? Don't eat babies. Don't eat babies. Don't eat babies. I already said that last time. Don't eat babies. Uh... Mm -hmm. Uh, don't lure uh, travelers into your heart to eat them. Don't burn witches, please. Um, don't don't burn witches. Don't burn witches, and maybe you know, uh, have some like bonfires and like naked running around in the forest once in a while. Yes, like, there's nothing wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, sure, there's go sky cloud once in a while, right? It's fun, but don't burn people in the bonfires. I think we should add that in the context of what we're talking about. <laughs> Just have a bit of fun in the forest. Have have naked fun in the forest, you guys. So, but don't burn yourself. Don't hurt yourself to other people, please. All right, then you'll hear from us very soon uh, with a lot more talk about witches. And you can, I mean, you probably at this point figured out how to listen to us because you're doing that at the moment. But if you're still, after listening to a whole episode about witches, ask yourself how you can listen to us then I can answer the question by saying you can listen to us anywhere you can listen to podcasts. And you can also listen to us on iTunes, uh, where you can also subscribe to us. And please rate and review us, because that really helps other people find us. And then we can write us an email uh, with feedback or praise or, you know, 
don't don't swear at us on the internet, please, but you can criticize us constructively uh, via she who persisted podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet to us, she persisted pod is the handle. We have a Facebook page and we have a Facebook group and we are on Instagram. And I think that's all we wanted to tell you. Uh, have a lovely Halloween. And share us with your feminist friends. Listen, share us with your feminist friends, but share us with your not very feminist friends too. Share us with all of your friends because especially those who are not feminists need this. Okay, they need to learn about witches. All right, do your Trump Trump ritual, please, uh, and stay nasty. Stay nasty. Stay nasty. Bye. Bye. With Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.